This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to Reform This, a one-of-a-kind broadcast uh, brought to you by the Blaze Radio Network of a reformist, patriotic American Muslim who brings to you weekly the challenges to breach the divide between the Islamist world and the free world, the land in the West that we are proud of, that I love, that my family came to seeking freedom, and I give back to you in this small way, in this podcast, in which I thank you for subscribing, for joining, and week to week I bring you the challenges that we face within the Muslim community and also the non-Muslim community of those those battlefronts, those lines that define what we need to work on, what we need to reform, and the week-to-week news stories that within lie in how we can develop one coherent strategy to bring our country closer to safety, to protect the freedoms that we cherish. And I believe that we can only do that through reformation within the Muslim community. And yes, only Muslims can do that. But ultimately, we need your help. We need your your knowledge, your urgency to wake up the majority of the Muslim community that I, you know, as I've said before, is no different than the majority of the Germans who sat through silently as Nazism took over their country. And unfortunately, the Nazism of today is political Islam, its supremacism, its belief that Islam should reign not only over each nation, but in a caliphate over the world in that the world is divided only into the land of Islam and the land of war. And we saw that this war is not going away. The times between attacks used to be counted on four, five months, sometimes six months since 9-11 in the last 15 years, and now they are getting horrifically closer together almost day to day, if not week to week. And last week we saw the use of a truck by a radical in Nice, an Islamist militant who decided to use his truck, no different than it was called for in the Inspire magazine that taught Al-Qaeda Futures, or even Dabak magazine of ISIS that teaches through their publications that if you can't find guns, if you can't find bombs, if you can't find pressure cookers, as they described, use a truck and find a gathering of people and mow them down. And that's what one of my co-religionists did. May he rot in hell as he was brought by the security forces that happened to be there carrying weapons that shot him down as he drove over people wantonly, that he hit like bugs, children and women and babies that were strewn in horrific fashion that did nothing wrong 
other than being French citizens, that wanted to celebrate Bastille Day. And there is symbolism in that day. That day was the day that the French celebrated their independence. They celebrated their, on 14 July 1790, the unity of the French nation was celebrated during the beginning of the French Revolution. That celebration, they felt, would bring, after one year, they determined that one year after the storming of the Bastille was to symbolize peace and that the event with marching outside would be transformed into remembrance of what the creation of the free secular state of France away from its monarchy, away from its tyranny would be. And there is a statement from Henry Martin, chairman of the French Senate, on June 29, 1880, in which he asked for the adoption of Bastille Day as a, as a holiday. He said, Do not forget that behind this July 14, where victory of the new era over the ancient regime was brought by fighting, do not forget that after the day of 14 July 1789, there was the day of 14 July 1790, the latter day cannot be blamed for having shed a drop of blood, for having divided the country. It was the consecration of the unity of France. If some of you might have scruples against the first 14 July, they certainly hold none against the second. Whatever difference which might part us, something hovers over them. It is the great images of national unity which we well, which we all desire, for which we should all stand willing to die if necessary. And I, and I have to tell you, um, you know, I grew up in a family that escaped the Baathism of Syria in 1966 and came to celebrate and practice freedom in America. And Syria was influenced quite a bit by the France, by by France and uh, the French occupation. And ultimately, when the French pulled out, they left behind the good and the bad. My uh, grandmother ultimately went to. Paris to teach to to get a degree in French literature, and she came back. She's one of the first uh, in her generation in the early twentieth century to have gone to France to Europe to be educated and come back. Um, and many many followed after her. That is until Syria reverted back to tyranny in in the seventies. But that relationship with Paris was founded, and one of the reasons why Syria I felt had. And many of us felt had one of the hopes for secular reforms was that it had been influenced. His educational system had been influenced by France. And I and I mention this to you because as we look at yet another horrific, barbaric attack done in the name of ISIS and the name of Islam by immigrants who came to the West supposedly to be free but yet came to destroy it under the name of political Islam the militant that committed the act the Islamist that committed the act did so because he chose and we will never know the ultimate reality he did not leave a manifesto that we've heard about yet but what he wanted to do he didn't choose Bastille Day by accident it was a symbol of the secularism of the unity, of the nationalism of France, and that is ultimately the greatest threat to Islamism, is secular national unity against the drug, the intoxicant of global ummah, the global faith community, the global nationalism of uh, 
Islamo-nationalism of political Islam that doesn't know secular state borders, that doesn't know a interfaith military, but rather only a Muslim military that fights a jihad versus the French military, the American or the British military that fight for the freedom of all its people, its immigrants that accept its social contract of the U.S. Constitution or the French Constitution. So Bastille Day has a significant, I think, symbolism. And I don't, it just cannot be by accident. And the method he used was not known war. It was asymmetric warfare. The Israelis have been fighting vehicular terrorism by Islamists of Hamas for years, but no one was paying attention. They just said, oh, just another one of these things by some crazy Palestinians, and they never looked upon it as ideology or ideologically driven. It's time to wake up that the scourge that has been attacking the people of Israel under the name of the Muslim Brotherhood and its Hamas, its Islamism, through, as we've seen some attacks with machetes or axes and attacks with vehicles driving up all of a sudden on a sidewalk and killing scores of innocent Israelis. So the attack in Nice is just one more reminder that the vector of radical Islam will find itself into the mind. The virus of radical Islam will find itself into the mind of another Islamist, another Muslim who will become that vector to spread it more and to spread more cancer and death and mayhem. And we will not be able to stop that until we cut it off at its root. And even when we cut it off at its root in in Syria, if we ever figured out a strategy to actually defeat ISIS, which would, as you and I have talked before, would have to include the defeat of Assad and the end of that regime. But that is turning what could have been a short-term solution now is also going to be fraught with long-term problems in the chaos that has become Syria. But ultimately, even if we defeat it in the short-term ISIS, it would uproot again. The roots would grow back because political Islam has not been reformed in the consciousness, in the national identity of Muslims. We have not defeated or de-ummatized, ummah meaning the global faith community of Muslims that find a unity based in a cohesion of not only faith, but of military and security identity or Sharia law identity that crosses national and global borders. Until we defeat that, until we end the idea of the Islamic State, until we end the idea of violent jihad, until we end the idea of the caliphate, there will be more nieces, more truck attacks, more pressure cooker attacks, more axe attacks, more knife attacks, more suicide bombings more sniper attacks and militancy committed by not lone wolves but vectors infused by the intoxicant of political Islam. Theocratic Islamo-nationalism is metastasizing will continue to metastasize and I shudder to say that next week, the week after we're going to hear more likely 
of other attacks, and it cannot be the new normal. We need a strategy. And if you learn anything from my program with you is that these battlefronts can only be fought if we build a force together of a defense for the secular state, of a defense for our universal human rights that are part of what make us European, that make us American. These defense of American ideals, not through political correctness, but to shed political correctness and to talk about American exceptionalism, the exceptionalism of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and not to be ashamed of it. But I can tell you as a Muslim that there is nothing we need more than a robust defense of liberty, classical liberalism, feminism, human rights, to begin to get and seed and and penetrate the human consciousness of Muslims, not only in Europe but around the world, that that can allow them still to be Muslim and close to God, but not have to pledge allegiance and subservience to the Islamic State and its jihad. This is important, and it is beyond important, and you'll not see the end of these attacks until there is a concerted, organized effort to defeat political Islam and its theocracy and also to advance and say what we're for, which are the ideas of the nation-state of France, of Europe, European states. And as we saw with Brexit, England exited the European Union and did so in order to maintain its national British autonomy in the United Kingdom. And I think this is at the key. I think viscerally many are beginning to understand that that's why they're being attacked. The fact that the Islamist who attacked Nice on July 14, 2016 and killed 74, if not 80, as the count went up and injured many more, did so because he believed in the supremacism of the Islamic or an Islamic state and he hated the independence of the French state which rejected monarchy and rejected theocracy. When we come back, let's talk about Turkey, honor killings, and this question of a faith test for Muslims. This is Zudi Jasser with Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser and welcome back to Reform This, your faithful podcast dedicated to defeating political Islam, to reforming, giving you the only solution out there to winning the war against radical Islamism, to protecting American and Western security, and to defeating the militants, and 
giving voice, giving hope to the Arab awakening in the Middle East for true freedom and liberty. Last, we were talking about Nice and what more we can learn from these attacks after attack. Orlando, Chattanooga, St. Bernardino, Boston, on and on. Every location becomes not a a name anymore for a city, but a remembrance of of a heinous, barbaric attack. And words can't express my outrage and, and how sickened I am. The denial must stop. If you get anything out of my podcast, I hope you start talking to your Muslim friends, demanding reform to listen to what I say here, to come to our website, aifdemocracy.org, muslimreformmovement.org, takebackislam.com, all of our projects dedicated to opening the eyes of Muslims and non-Muslims to what has to happen to finally begin to break open the seal of the Muslim consciousness that has been suffocated by theocracy over the past centuries. It's time that we declare war on political Islam and Islamism. And we start to, as I mentioned last segment, hold our communities accountable to the principles that bind us together. And our Muslim Reform Movement Declaration has done that. It lists those things that if Muslims believe in, they would obviously be accepted as neighbors. And if they reject them, then they would become threats. Now, recently, a few days ago, in the heat of political campaign, we've seen as the uh, Republican convention was getting ready to uh, uh, go and um, has uh, moved through this week, there were some comments right before from Newt Gingrich who uh, basically said that not only should there be a faith test, but uh, ultimately, the Muslim community, if they cannot reject many of the draconian elements of Sharia, should then be deported. Now, later the next day, Mr. Gingrich said that that was hysterical. The response was hysterical, and, and he walked back some of that. Uh, but there's no doubt that if you look at what he said exactly, he said they should be deported, Muslims that are in America who cannot accept that. Now, Listen, there's nobody who's been more outspoken against the Sharia state and its attendant threat to our way of life and the allegiance to the theocratic mentality of, of jihad, of ummatization, of caliphism, the destruction of women's rights, hudud or punishment laws that exist. All these things are incompatible with Western society, I agree. But yes, we should make that a test for immigrants, and not only refugees, but all immigrants. We should make that a test for those who want any type of security clearance, be it in government or in the private sector that are doing work with the government, be it in DOD, State Department, political clearances, etc. But citizens that are here, that aren't, getting clearances that are simply exerting free speech. We have determined, and I think America has the best answer to this in a Supreme Court case in Ohio where Bradbury versus Ohio said that uh, ultimately the as long as an individual, and this is related to the KKK, 
is not preaching imminent acts of direct violence against another individual, that that's protected speech. Be it repulsive, repugnant hate speech, it's still protected. The Westboro Baptist Church and its offense to military families because they have some obsession on homosexual, their, their homophobia, be it even folks that, like the Nazi Party and Communist Party, that have ideologies that are incompatible with our Constitution and freedom and liberty, but yet we allow them to operate. Now, are their threats the same as global Islamism? No, they're not. But this is not about moral equivalency. It's about what are the standards of our Constitution, and do we change them through a slippery slope that would then destroy who we are as a country, and also diffuse the most potent element that I believe is the answer for Muslims to embody against theocracy and political Islam, that our founding fathers wrote this constitution and the Bill of Rights that we now protect and cherish in response to theocracy. So if Muslims are going to do the same, we can't change it and say, well, let's the Bill of Rights, except for Muslims who we hope adopt, and then we'll use that to de- defeat political Islam. That's absurd. And by the way, lastly, as we've said before on this program, it, it, that does not work. It does not work to push groups underground, make them illegal, or threaten them with deportation if they don't pass the test that I, I would agree with Newt Gingrich is important for immigrants and people's security clearances and, and for which mosques we should monitor, etc. Yes, I'm not saying to violate their privacy, but if they're public institutions with a public footprint and public sermons and you can walk through the front door, then why not monitor their speech, monitor their businesses uh, if they are public establishments and hold them accountable to what they say? And yes, you should follow the ideas. If their ideology is pro Sharia with uh, blasphemy laws and apostasy laws and other things which are incompatible with Western ideas, then they should be monitored as they should be denied if they apply for homeland security clearances, airport clearances, DOD clearances, or if their families are coming in in immigration, they should be denied immigration if they cannot reject the Sharia state. Now, some would say they would lie But these processes are well-established and can be well-established as to how to pick up on inconsistencies during the interview process. I mean, Israel does it very well, uh, and and I think we need to establish a new paradigm that I think our Muslim reform movement uh, would would help do through our declaration that exists. I'd ask you to look at that simple two-page declaration. And by the way, we've done this in the Cold War. And even before, when we vetted Immigrants wanting to seek freedom away from the Holocaust and and Nazism, whether they belonged and felt they belonged to the Third Reich, whether they belonged to Mussolini's Italy, whether they belonged to the emperor, the emperor of Japan and his ideology, or communism. The immigration papers we fill out today still ask, are you a member of the Communist Party or have you ever been? That's relevant. Now, people could lie. But again, we would do a lot better job vetting if we included questions about jihadism, caliphism, or Sharia statism. So there's a lot that can be done. 
but don't overshoot. Mr. Gingrich, don't apply that to deporting Muslims that exist here or starting to query people to prove their citizenship that are birthright citizens or citizens that have been naturalized. You know, my family cherish their naturalized citizenship as much, if not more, than many, if not most Americans I ever met. And and that's how I turned out the way I did, wanting to serve in our Navy. Because America taught my family that they were American. The, me- the minute they wanted to escape political and uh, political persecution and seek refuge here in America. They felt American. And that concept is what's harming Europe. Europe has not fine-tuned what it means to be British or French for immigrants coming in. How do they define that? How do they define what it means to be German for an immigrant that's first or second generation? I think we're ahead of the game there as Americans because Americanism was based on immigrant immigrants seeking freedom and liberty. So we can't then turn that around and say in the name of security, we are going to abandon that and deport those who don't meet some test. That's chaos and it doesn't work. It pushes them underground and you can't monitor hate groups. You can't monitor hate speech and you can't reform. Our entire program here is dedicated to reforming this. What is this? I can't help you figure out what this is inside the House of Islam unless you can monitor it, unless we can tape it. I've taped sermons from my own mosque in Arizona and and publicized them, transcribed them, and then criticized the imam about the radicalization that it does through his anti-Americanism, anti-Semitism. I couldn't have done that if these things were made illegal because I would have then been either having to report it to Homeland Security without being able to talk about it and influence a lot more through the antiseptic of sunlight. No. You would just basically end up controlling one imam, pushing him underground, and then he'd have house mosque discussions, like the underground movements in Saudi Arabia and other places with faiths that are not part of the country's faiths that do so through house churches, etc. Now, those are the more, obviously, the more moral movements because the country is corrupt. But I think we would be headed towards that type of corruption if, if we end up having faith tests that we would deport people for. Yes, though, it is time to declare war on political Islam and to begin vetting some kind of vetting against jihadism and jihadization and adherence to Sharia. I agree that should be part of our conversation every day, but we just don't have it. What the heck happened in Turkey? Was it a coup or was it a Reichstag fire? When we come back, let's talk about Erdogan and his antics. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser 
on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. Available August 2nd. Pre-order now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. The world is scratching its collective head in the past week trying to figure out what the heck happened in Turkey. Now, as is naturally the case, as information is uh, released from a global event, you believe what you read and see that's unfolding before you. And pictures showed what appeared to be military attacks upon the front of the parliament, not the parliament building, but the front of it in Turkey, in Istanbul, in Ankara. And there were a few little sporadic attacks here or there. And the news stories were that there was a coup unfolding against Erdogan, who happened to be vacationing. And all of a sudden you saw reports of a takeover of the Turkish primary media arm. And Erdogan was only able to communicate with the people, telling them to resist the military and go to the streets, but he wasn't using traditional media arms. He was using FaceTime through his iPhone and CNN Turk. And the initial responses were that, well, if the military takes over your media arm and you're using FaceTime, maybe you are in trouble. His airplane then goes in the air, could have been shot down, was in the sights of military jets, but was not circled for quite a while. If you look at the flight patterns, it was actually fascinating. And then ended up landing in Istanbul and taking back control. Now, it's interesting that he was able to push back this supposed coup, and many now are calling it his Reichstag fire. To remind you, the Reichstag fire was Adolf Hitler's mechanism of, in 1933, using arson on the German on the German parliament to then blame it on a Dutch anarchist and use that as a justification for suspending civil, liberty, civil liberties and beginning the deterioration and fall of Germany into a vicious military dictatorship. And it does appear that this push in Turkey is, I believe, the false flag of some kind. Because it's just not, it, it's just not making any sense. There are many, many forces in Turkey that uh, would like to see Erdogan depart. Uh, two major ones. One is the secular military, uh, 
But if you look at uh, Michael Rubin's uh, accounting and commentary about comparing other coups, he spoke to an expert uh, who had witnessed some of these coups. And the witness had described the 1960 coup in which his father had been detained and the coup was announced in the morning on national radio. Now, obviously, there was no television then, but it had always been a leading officer of the coup that made the announcement, not just some uh, television personality that did it as they did in this one. In the 1980 coup, it was General Everett himself, chief of staff and leader of the coup, that made the announcement. But again, not this time. It was just the TRT headquarters of the media arm uh, in which that announcement was made. So that's very odd. The other thing is to usually coups will arrest top political leaders, the president, prime minister. But again, not so this time. In previous coups in Turkey, usually the heads of the, the government were taken out in some way. Not so this time. Usually they start early hours in the morning when everybody's asleep so that by the time they're awake, things are solidified and the coup is beginning to take hold. Not so this time. It seemed like they wanted as much attention for their small little coup as possible. So there are many questions to be asked here. And I won't go through all of them for you, but the bottom line is is that Erdogan's Turkey is turning into a cult of personality. Mustafa Akil wrote an wrote a excellent piece in which he laid out some of the history of the Justice and Development Party. And this was last year. He wrote about how the organization had promised consultation, term limits, and other things. And it had turned into a Islamist party of personality in which Erdogan had turned into an idol and even had been described as Allah and God, which is heresy for a Muslim. But he had turned his presidency into a presidency of personality, of demagoguery and dictatorship. And this is from a reformist Muslim, Mustafa Kyul. And then ultimately it was a Machiavellianism that had taken over how Erdogan was ruling. And Mustafa wrote this a year ago in March 2015. So, you know, the writing's been on the wall for some time. And even just two weeks before this whole effort, Erdogan's government, which had supported the Islamists of Syria, all the way, some would argue, illegal provision and purchasing of oil from ISIS, but especially some of the peri-Islamists, the Islamist hardcore groups like Jubat al-Nusra and others had been getting support from Turkey. And yet, a week before this bizarre so-called coup, they made overtures to Russia, overtures to the Assad regime, that somehow they could repair and begin diplomacy with the foreign minister of Turkey talking about actual meetings and and uh, recognition and discussion with Assad again. And if not, also reestablishing diplomatic relations with Russia in a better way, in a more open, positive way. And then also reestablishing communications with Israel. 
This is coming from a government, Erdogan's government, who had sent flotillas to the West Bank and been pro-Hamas and pro-Muslim Brotherhood with Morsi and also done overtures with Iran in the past. So, at the end of the day, it may be his Reichstag fire. We'll see what happens over the next few months. And now, just a couple days before this podcast air, 21,000 university professors in Turkey who are on the government payroll had received their papers that they would have to report and may not be able to go back to their jobs, that this ultimately may be a cleansing of the Gulenists. Now, I had talked about the major arms that would like to see Erdogan leave. One arm was the secular military, which are supposedly the protectors of the Turkish constitution and its its secularism, which obviously can't stand the Islamism of the Justice and Development Party of the AKP of Turkey. And the other arm is the Gulenist, also another cultist movement, which is very difficult to pin down, has no clarity about what their mission is, is obviously more moderate in that it's not an open Islamist party like the AKP is, but yet is more personality-driven to the point that Fatullah Gulen had to leave Turkey and has asylum and lives in the Poconos in Pennsylvania in the United States. And after this coup happened within a day or two, the foreign minister was telling another NATO country, the United States, if it doesn't release Gulen, that it would be an act of war. Now that's pretty heavy verbiage from a NATO country. So at the minimum, I would hope that NATO convenes and begins to put Turkey on notice that its actions, whether it planned this weird coup or or not, but its verbiage and its behaviors internally are autocratic, dictatorial, and not fitting of a democracy that should be part of NATO. And yeah, we, we saw the Obama administration stand behind their man, Erdogan, and condemn the coup. And listen, I get it. No ends justifies the means when you talk about a military coup. It can't. Egypt's al-Sisi is a good example. Might have made us feel good to get rid of a Islamist tyranny of Mohammed Morsi. But as all coups do end up showing, the dictator does prove to be a radical and a militant tyrant, but also it has no legitimacy. You can't have a legitimate free government than have elections that comes to power through a military coup. So, time will tell what's happening in Turkey, but keep your eyes peeled. And I want to end this segment with a very important point about why I walk you through these gyrations of the understandings of be it Syria, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, or now Turkey. The elephant in the room for Muslim consciousness in the West is the tyranny of these governments across the planet. Do not underestimate, do not underestimate the impact which tyrannical regimes from Saudi Arabia to Pakistan to Iran to Egypt to Turkey to Syria have upon the ability 
and the confidence of Muslims to have to speak out for reform. In Turkey, this so-called democracy, imams have their sermons controlled by the government. They are handed talking points in which they have to stick to. So religious freedom is not even close to being what we understand it to be in the West in Turkey. Ask the Christian community, the few that exist there, how they're treated. Ask the few remaining Jews in Turkey and how they're treated. There are very limited religious freedoms for minority faiths and especially for dissenting views of of Muslims against the Islamists. But the key is the environment. The key is the laboratory. The fact that they don't have an environment in which they can question authority the fact that the environment of tyranny that that reigns upon their country, be it military, be it journalistic control, academic control, as long as the system, whether it's in a, a truly Islamist regime or a secular nationalist regime, as my family escaped in Syria from the Ba'athists, either way, anyone who questions and criti- criticizes Religious, political, or governmental, or academic leaders will end up in jail if they don't toe the line of the one ideology that controls society. So it's fascinating I hear from people, well, you know, the Christians are protected better under Assad than under ISIS. It's all the same. The only Christians protected under Assad were the Ba'athists. Non-Ba'athist Christians, be it communists, be it free, capitalist Christians, were rejected just as much as the Islamists. And yes, the Islamists are our enemy as much as the communists are our enemy. But they were also the enemy of the Ba'athists, and the Ba'athists are our enemies. So the enemy of our enemy is not our friend. Our friends are those who share our principles of freedom and liberty. So this is what we need to start looking at. And when you ask what are the who are the friends that we should look for, who are the friends that we should share and help in Turkey or in Syria or in Russia or anywhere that may happen to be Muslim? I would tell you that they are the ones who share our principles and they exist. Our universal principles of human rights and freedom and democracy. And some may not know them yet, but as they learn about these principles, will then become our allies. As long as they haven't been pre-brainwashed into being Islamists or secular fascists such as the Arabist Ba'athists, the Nazis of the Middle East. So be careful when you say, well, secular Turkish nationalists are better than the Islamists. They might be better, but they're certainly, if they're military dictators, they're not going to breed an environment. The Ataturk example of Turkish secularism outlawed the discussion of Arabic in Turkey. You could not read the Qur'an in Arabic or educate people about the descriptions and definitions and and interpretations or tafsir in Arabic. And they did that to protect themselves from Wahhabi Islam and other forms of Salafism. But it also prevented critique. It prevented the very core understanding of the words and the interpretations that would be necessary to defeat Wahhabism. And it pushed them underground, which actually was a fertile soil for Islamism and why the AKP then comes fast forward to 2002 when it becomes legitimate, is allowed to be legitimate, then 
has control of many of the mosque institutions because it was pushed underground. The best way to treat bad ideas is with good ideas, not by pushing them underground. So that's Turkey. And that's the importance of why, when we talk about reform, why this issue of foreign governments and the governments of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, I'll continue to bring back to you. We cannot in America, as much as American Muslims can lead reform efforts, we cannot do this reform without the similar principles being applied by our motherlands, whether it be Syria, Turkey, Egypt, wherever our families came from, that we be holding them accountable to the same principles. Muslims who talk out of both sides of their mouth and say, oh, for Egypt, let's have a dictatorship because that's what they need, while in America we demand freedom and liberty. You can't talk out of both sides of your mouth and be consistent and have one coherent personality as an American or as a human being and one coherent consciousness as a Muslim that that reform needs to be born out of liberty. It can't be born out of one principle for Turkey and one principle for America. This is Zudi Jasser, your faithful podcast of Reform This. When we come back, our last segment, I'll talk to you about another horrific honor killing in Pakistan. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. There are white people getting shot accidentally, too. I mean, I mean it's not yeah, but a lot less than black people. No, more, actually. More. More, like twice as many In what white way? People. In what way? Uh, by police. Um, uh, in that way. Uh, shot. Yeah, but when you say more, I mean, you more. mean you're coming you up with a, some Double. mathematical trick. Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to the last segment of Reform This this week. And, you know, there's a topic that's long been dear to my heart, and it is the issue of honor violence, honor abuse, and honor killings. And enough can never be said about the horrific crimes done in the name, again, of Islam and Muslims and done to women all over the planet. One of the countries that's the worst offenders of honor, violence, and abuse is Pakistan. They have almost 800 to 1,000 killed a year since 2015. Over 1,000 have been killed, something like three, 400 since in 2016 already. And most recently, the horrific murder of... Kandil Balok, who was killed by her brother. And this one is especially important to discuss because aside from, you know, for those who don't know what honor killing is and, and what it is, it is the intentional murder of a woman who embarrasses her family through dishonor of sexuality, uh, behavior that they deem to be un-Islamic, 
whether it be through dating, through drinking, through uh, wearing a short dress or short skirt, whatever it may be, they the brothers, typically somebody within the family who the poor victims assume are people that should, that should love her, when in fact end up becoming those empowered to commit these heinous crimes of sometimes torture and abuse, but often killing and murder. And then the system, the tribe, ends up defending them. They say that Sharia does not give them, the Islamic law does not give them the same penalty as first or second degree murder, when in fact that these women lost their rights because they acted in un-Islamic ways and became apostates and inhuman. And so, in no different than terrorism targets, uses a car to mow over individuals because they feel they're non-human or inhuman because they're not Muslims or belong in the land of war and they're victims of a asynchronous warfare. Women become victims of a war for the chastity and, and honor of their being and when they lose their bodily autonomy and they lose their choice. That is what honor killings and honor abuse is all about. There's so much written and so much heroic work done by heroes of this work. Honor Diaries is a documentary that Clarion Project did that highlights nine courageous women in their work. But the issue of and the story of Kandil Balak I think is important because she was considered to be sort of the Kim Kardashian of Pakistan. She had almost 800,000 Facebook followers and hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. And she had posted pictures that were felt to be risque and, and often pushed the, the envelope. She had been forced to, to marriage at the age of 17. And it appeared that she used her internet sensation to push the envelope and become a lightning rod of the, the things that she intentionally poked at as being ways in which society had double standard and hypocrisy in the way they approached women. And so I think she was far more courageous than Kim Kardashian. She intentionally stuck her neck out and courageously defied. And she had many tweets in which she talked about girl power and women's power and the refusal of herself to deny and to, to step aside to the mores of a male-dominated paternal society. So, a few days before her death, she had posted pictures that she was able to get an Imam Kavi to show she depicted sitting in his lap and, and uh, in many ways acting inappropriately towards him. And then later... His response, here's an imam, a cleric. His response was that he was being deceived and he wanted to educate people about how terrible they looked and acted when they were put in those positions. And he faulted her with doing that. And a few days later, either the imam put out a hit job on her and recommended that one of the family members do this or her brother 
decided on his own that she was an embarrassment of the Bullock name, and he ultimately strangled her. He says she didn't suffer because he drugged her first, but he strangled her and killed her, and then he was brought to authorities. She was buried one day later, and you want something sick? Kandil's prayer service was led by that Imam Kavi. Now that is sick and twisted. Many came to her funeral services, but not enough. How many people in the West know who Kandil Balok is? She asked for protection from the Pakistani Protective Services. Dawn.com, one of the news services in Pakistan, mentioned that on repeated occasions that she had had threats. She even moved to Karachi, away from another province, in which she had been threatened because of those things. But apparently, her life was not important enough. And yet, most of the Islamist organizations in America today and this week were complaining about the bigotry and Islamophobia of the Republican National Convention. They weren't talking about what's happening in Pakistan, about the honor killings or the Hudud punishments that are exerted, the blasphemy laws. No, those are not what destroy the image of Islam and what destroy any hope for reform. No, the focus of the Council on American-Islamic Relations and the Muslim Public Affairs Council is the Republican National Convention. This is why we have problems. We don't know where we need to reform or where to focus our priorities or what to put our bandwidth into. Majid Nawaz wrote an impassioned piece at the Daily Beast, and the true reformers like Majid, like Ezra Nomani, like Raheel Raza, Raheel Raza or Raquel Saraswati, or other feminists who, who work tirelessly to educate the West about how women are on the front lines, how some adults, girls, 18, 19, are tied up in their homes because their parents do not want them to date and experience the West. Honor killings occur in the United States. There have been 24 in the last year, according to human rights reports. 5,000 in the past decade. We had one in Arizona with Nora Maliki, in which her father, her Iraqi father, drove over her with her truck because she was dating a non-Muslim and refused to listen to her parents. And there have been others in Atlanta and Dallas and Toronto and other cities in which we've seen women abused and tortured. This doesn't come from nowhere. In Saudi Arabia, rape victims are considered criminals because they were alone with men, and often they are the ones punished because they've lost their virginity. Can you believe that is the heinous state of what is called Islamic law that is in the 12th century? Even be, That is prehistoric, pre-medieval interpretations of Islamic law, but yet that is normative Islamic law of most Sharia texts. Ask your Muslim physician friends, whether a rape kit is enough to diagnose rape as it is in American law. Many of them will tell you that you need to have four witnesses, some bizarre interpretation of Sharia law, in order to convict a man of committing an act of rape. 
And if they don't have those four eyewitnesses, then they cannot convict. So forget the DNA evidence, forget any of that. That doesn't matter, because according to their 7th century interpretation of Islamic law, you need to have eyewitnesses. And this is why so many, and this is normative interpretations. In America, ask Muslims what their interpretation is if DNA evidence, as collected according to American law and Western law, is enough according to Sharia law. And then you wonder why most Muslim women, when asked, do not want to go to any Sharia arbitration systems. And yet, we Muslims who protest the application of Sharia systems in America are called anti-Islam by the Sharia apologists. And yet, the legislation that I think was appropriately put through Michigan, Florida, Arizona, that said that arbitration systems cannot put foreign law above American. And yes, there needs to be, I think, observation and accountability to federal to federal laws, constitutional laws. Yes, I don't want government interfering in arbitration systems. And yes, there are, you know, halakha courts and um, beta deen courts, rather, canonic courts for, for Christian communities. But they can hold muster to not conflicting with constitutional law. And if they don't, they should be, have oversight from the federal system. So please spare me the independence from federal systems when most Sharia courts are still using legalisms and interpretations from the 12th and 13th centuries, even the 7th centuries. They do not deserve the protection of independent court systems, and they should make sure those women who are brought through and subjugated and losing bodily autonomy, where they tell where a man can divorce them with just no process whatsoever, while if they want a divorce, they aren't granted it. It's absurd. There's so many problems, I, I can't even describe them to you at this time. So Kandil Balak, look at her pictures, look at what she did during her life. And as... Majid said she should not rest in peace, she should rest in power, that we should empower her and what she stood for, for moving more women, more societies to protect women that defy their lack of bodily autonomy and demand bodily autonomy and bodily equality with men and no longer allow them to be abused in any way and demand that interpretations of passages in the Quran that supposedly give men the right to beat women and other things that I reject and most Muslim reformers reject those interpretations be brought to the 21st century and that's what our Muslim Reform Movement Declaration does and we reject any interpretation of Islam that does anything but interpret those passages for the full equality of men and women. They don't get a quarter of the inheritance. They don't get a half a vote in the court system. All these things need to be addressed by Muslims inside and outside our faith community. But for crying out loud, non-Muslims in America do not hold Muslims accountable to a bigotry of low expectations. If you love your countrymen and women, regardless of faith, hold us accountable to the same principles you hold every other faith. And that's when the honor killings will decrease, and that's when lives across the planet like Kandil's are not lost in vain. Thank you for joining me. 
on Reform This. This is Zudi Jasser. I bring to you every week the fault lines in discussion and bridging those areas that need to be breached between the Islamist world and the free world, be it from Turkey to Pakistan to Nice to the United States of America. This is your faithful American patriot, Zudi Jasser. Thank you for joining me. God bless. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.